the most important thought that you will ever think is what you think when you think of God because it will determine every dimension of your life. And the Apostle Paul knew this. It's why he's writing to the Colossian church. He wants them to think rightly about God because they have been entertaining false ideas about God, which were being peddled by some false teachers who had crept into the church. So Paul wants them to know who Jesus is. And please understand this. This is always the need of the church in every generation. Do we think rightly about God? Are we getting our ideas about who God is from his word? Or are we getting it from culture? Are we getting it from social media? From what our friends might be saying? Are we getting it from our own hearts, our own thoughts? And that was the issue in the 4th century church. So I want us to go back again to the 4th century and look at the events leading up to and after the Council of Nicaea, which gave birth to the Nicene Creed, which we talked about last week. So this will be another little sermon-slash-church-history-lecture hybrid. We're still going to be using Colossians 1.15 as our foundation, so turn in your Bibles to Colossians one. And at the heart of the discussion in the church in the 4th century was this word, homoousios. It's fun to say, homoousios. That's the word that every Christian should know. In the 4th century, the church would stand or fall on that word, homoousios. Now, I'm going to explain what it means in a moment, but first, let's read our verse for the day. Colossians chapter 1, look at verse 15 and hear the word of the Lord. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So recall what we saw last week. Jesus makes known to us the triune God. If we have seen Jesus, then we have seen God the Father. Jesus makes the invisible God visible to us in flesh and blood and bone and tissue and earlobes and kneecaps. We also saw that if you make Jesus less than God, then you make the gospel less than good. The gospel is not good news if Jesus is not the eternal Son of God. If you mess up the person of Jesus, then you mess up his work and what he has done. If you get the person of Christ wrong, then you get the work of Christ wrong. If you get Jesus wrong, you get the gospel wrong. And if you get Jesus wrong, then you don't have salvation. You don't have the forgiveness of sins. You don't have anything but a brand spanking new Jesus that's not the real Jesus of Colossians 1.15. And that's exactly what was happening in the church in the 4th century. A winsome pastor was gaining popularity with his sermons and books and blog posts and tweets and catchy worship songs. The problem was this. He taught that Jesus was not the eternal son of God, but that Jesus was actually the very first thing that God created. His name was Arius, and his teachings were splitting the church right down the middle. And when Arius read Colossians 1.15, that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, he believed that Jesus actually had a birthday in eternity past. So a soft-spoken bishop named Alexander stepped up 
to confront Arius. And that started a seven-year rap battle, if you will, between Alexander and Arius that led up to the Council of Nicaea in 324-325. This theological battle over the nature or the essence of Jesus was spreading all over the Roman Empire and threatening to not only destroy the church, but to destroy the kingdom. So in response to this, the emperor, Constantine, called together all of the church's theologians and pastors and Christian thinkers to discuss Jesus, to discuss the Son's essence and his relationship with God the Father. Was it an eternal sonship? Or did God create Jesus? And this happened in the winter and spring of A.D. 324, 325 in the city of Nicaea at what is now known as the Council of Nicaea where Arius was condemned as a heretic and the church created an official response to Arius known as the Nicene Creed. So I want to read the Nicene Creed to you. It was on the cover of our worship bulletin last week. By the way, I was required to memorize this in seminary, so thank you, Dr. Glenn Kreider, for that. I've actually forgotten it. I'm familiar with it and could work my way through it, but I had to memorize it as, at one point. That's how important these words are. The Nicene Creed says this, We believe in one God, Father, all-sovereign, maker of all things seen and unseen, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Begotten from the Father as only begotten, that is, from the substance of the Father. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence, one in, with the Father, through whom all things came into existence, the things in heaven and the things on earth who because of men and our salvation came down and was incarnated, made man, suffered and arose the third day, ascended into heaven, comes to judge the living and the dead, and in one Holy Spirit. And now they're going to address Arius and his followers. And to those who say, there was once when he was not, or he was not before he was begotten, or he came into existence from nothing, or who affirm that the Son of God is of another nature or substance, or a creature, or mutable, or subject to change, such ones the Catholic or universal and apostolic church pronounces accursed and separated from the church. And that beautiful piece of Christian theology came about because of one guy named Arius as a response to his teachings. And so as a result... Of the Council of Nicaea, Arius was condemned as a heretic. Arianism was con- condemned as heresy. His books were burned. He was banished to Yugoslavia. He was canceled before canceling people was very popular. He was rightly canceled. But Arius did not just lay low. He didn't just disappear after Nicaea and walk away with his tail between his legs. He didn't delete all of his social media accounts. In fact, he started posting even more. He doubled down on his beliefs, and he continued to spread his teachings, especially through his catchy worship songs. 
But let's rewind just a bit and let's talk about what actually happened at the Council of Nicaea. A group of over 325 bishops and pastors, and the bishop was just kind of the head over all the pastors in a city. So if you had eight pastors and eight churches in a city, there was a bishop who gave oversight to those men. So 325 bishops and pastors gathered, and the emperor Constantine, read the government, picked up the bill and covered all of their expenses. Their expenses to travel, their hotels, what they ate. I mean, imagine the government picking up the tab at a pastor's conference. Saying, we're going to pay for every pastor to fly in. That's what happened. Bishops and presbyters came from all over. Europe, Libya, Asia, Palestine, Persia, even as far away as Spain. So imagine the scene. It reads like that passage in Revelation 5 where every nation, race, tribe, and tongue is pictured. They all showed up at Nicaea. Imagine the diversity, the diversity in clothing and hairstyles, and yet they were all unified primarily to refute the teachings of Arius and to defend the one true gospel. Arius, though he was a pastor, was not able to attend the meeting because he was not a bishop, but a few of his friends were, and they were there, like a gentleman named Eusebius of Nicodemia. He spoke on behalf of Arius at the Council of Nicaea, and those who favored Arius and his teachings thought that if we could just explain the logic behind what Arius is saying, then all of this would be resolved. And Arius would be cleared of any wrongdoing. And so from May to July in 325 AD, this was the main item on the agenda. Now there was a few other items like uh, what we do with the Lord's Supper, what's the date of Easter, and different things like that. But this was the main item on the agenda. Did Jesus have the same essence or nature as God the Father? The Bishop of Alexandria, uh, Alexander, argued that Jesus was of the same nature as the Father. The Greek word that Alexander and then later his friend Athanasius proposed was this homoousios, from the word homo meaning same and ousios meaning nature. Homoousios. It's fun to say. Indicating that Jesus possessed the same identical nature as God the Father. That he is God just as the Father is God. That he is the image of the invisible God. That he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So Arius' friend Eusebius of Nicodemia spoke up, tried to present his case on behalf of Arius, and once he was done, it was clear that this teaching was heretical and direct, a direct contradiction to God's word. Eusebius' explanation actually caused several bishops to stand up and cry out and say, You lie! And blasphemy! Heresy! He was eventually shouted down. His speech was yanked from his hand, ripped to shreds, and then trampled underfoot. By the way, this is how you respond to heresy. You rip it up and you trample it underfoot. And so at this point, it was clear that this was no minor doctrinal issue that could be easily cleared up. This was serious. The council was in unison that they needed to reject Arianism in the clearest way possible because it contradicted God's word. But they were aware that this would be difficult to do because Arius and his followers would just say, well, we just interpret those verses differently than you do. 
They knew they had to form a creed to reject Arius because Arius would just say, well, that's just your interpretation. You ever hear that? Well, that's just your interpretation. No, that's what God's word says. And it was Constantine, the emperor, who actually suggested using the word homoousios, same nature essence, in what would become the Nicene Creed. But some people thought, well, what if we say that Jesus was homoousios, from the word homoi, meaning similar, and ousios, nature. And they thought this will be sufficient. Some people wanted all the divisions and debates that were sweeping through the churches to end, so they said, let's compromise. Don't say that Jesus is from the same nature as the Father. Don't say that he is the image of the invisible God. Let's say that he is similar in nature to God the Father. And so there was a big debate in the churches over these very similar-sounding words, homoousios and homoousios. And the debate that was sweeping through the empire was over one letter, the letter I. Did Jesus have the same nature, homoousios? Or was he just similar, homoousios, to God the Father? These were the questions that were being discussed at Nicaea. And after three months of discussion, it came time to vote. These are the results. And when you read about the the, uh, voting results, the positive votes vary, but the negative notes are very clear. It was a landslide. Stephen Nichols, a church historian, says this. Sticking with numbers, the vote at Nicaea was not close. Pinpointing the number of bishops in attendance is difficult. Numbers range from 220 to 318. The number of yay votes ranged anywhere from 218 to 316. Scholars know the number of nay votes with accuracy. They were two cast by friends of Arius. So when they're voting on, is Arius a heretic and should his teachings be condemned? You have between 218 and 316 bishops voting in in the affirmative that Jesus has the same exact nature as God the Father. And there were two votes in the negative and they were cast by the friends of Arius. He had 316 to 2. The Council of Nicaea wants you to know that the most important thought that you will ever think is what you think when you think of God because it will determine every dimension of your life. In every generation, this is the most pressing thing before the church. What do we think about God? Who is he? What does his word say about him? A.W. Tozer said this in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he deep in his heart conceives God to be like. Before the Christian church goes into eclipse anywhere, there must first be a corrupting of her simple, basic theology. She simply gets a wrong answer to the question, what is God like? And goes on from there. Anytime you have issues where Christians are not believing things that are very clear in God's word, the starting place is that they've changed their views about God. Well, I mean, people want to deny hell, and so what do they focus on? Only on God's kindness and love and mercy. They don't want to think about his justice. They don't want to think about his holiness. And so they begin shifting and thinking God is just just and only a God of love. 
He's not a God of justice. He's not a God who responds in real time to the anger of man's sin. Always what happens is we change our views about God. The issues in our day about gender and marriage and things like that, the starting point is they're changing their ideas about who God is. Well, God, I know it says that, but I think God this. That's why we cannot abandon God's word. It's why we must read it in community, the community of the local church, in the community of church history. And so Alexander and company prevailed over Arius, insisting that Jesus was of the same nature as God. Arius was exiled along with many of his followers for teaching this heresy, but the debates didn't end after Nicaea. Condemning Arius and his teachings at the Council of Nicaea was relatively easy compared to the task of rooting out Arian teachings from the church. And so Athanasius took over as Bishop of Alexander, Alexandria after Alexander. And Athanasius had to spend the rest of his life laboring to refute Arius. This is how entrenched the beliefs and teachings were in churches. Athanasius continued to preach against Arius, filling his sermons with the orthodox position of Nicaea. He began writing books to counter the claims of Arius Books with titles like Against the Arians or On the Incarnation, one of his more popular ones. Though there was victory at Nicaea, Athanasius kept getting sent into exile by whoever was the emperor because they, were, they wanted this to go away. And Athanasius is like, I'm not budging on this. And it's like, you're, you're dividing people. And he said, no, this is truth. We have to stand for truth no matter what kind of division happens. And these emperors are like, we're tired of you, dude. Let it go. And he's like, I'm not going to let it go. He was even arrested and exiled one time right in the middle of serving communion. They're taking the Lord's Supper. He's talking to people about the body and blood of Jesus, and they came in and put him in handcuffs and took him away to exile. This was the life of suffering that Athanasius endured for the sake of the gospel. He was exiled five times, once by Constantine from 336 to 338, twice by Constantinus from 339 to 346, and then again 356 to 366, once by Julian for a couple of years, and once by Valens. Why? Because the emperors were like, we're tired of this theological discussion, let it go. Athanasius spent more time in exile than he did pastoring his church and serving as the bishop of his city. In 46 years as Bishop of Alexandria, he only spent 17 years in the city. Eventually, a slogan began to spread on social media about him, and it was this, Athanasius contra mundum, which means Athanasius against the world. He battled against the world political system and politicians, and he battled against heretics within the church. And so they said, Athanasius contra mundum. He is against Everyone. But get this, for over 60 plus years, Athanasius defended the doctrine that Jesus is of the same essence or nature as God the Father. For 60 years, Athanasius defended that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. 60 years defending and explaining Colossians 1.15. 60 years defending the church against one letter, the letter I in the word ha moiusion. Church historian Stephen Nichols says this about the tenacity of Athanasius. He says, Athanasius took hold of an idea, the word homoousion, and would not for life or limb or exile 
let go. The church could not be as grateful to anyone as they can and should be to Athanasius, a theologian who wrangled over not just a word, but over a single letter for six decades. Athanasius spent his life in one long theological debate over apparent minutia, and if he hadn't, we'd all be in trouble. One has to ask why Athanasius endured so much for so long. Why did he wrangle for decades over one word, over one letter, I? The reason comes in a phrase also found in the Nicene Creed, a phrase that is attributed to Athanasius. It may not be too much of a stretch to claim this phrase to be one of the most profound, if not beautiful, phrases in all of theological literature, the phrase, for us and for our salvation. Athanasius wrangled with the best minds of the day and endured persecution at the hands of the most powerful politicians of the day, all for the sake of the gospel. The person of Christ, Athanasius believed, had everything to do with the work of Christ. If the church got it wrong on the person of Christ, the church would get, get it wrong on the work of Christ. Athanasius spent six, days, six decades contending for a letter and contending against the world for the sake of the gospel. Why? For us and our salvation so that we have right thoughts about God because it matters what we think about God. That's why this is important. It's why Nicaea is, impo- is important. It's why we affirm the Nicene Creed. It's why we care about the word hamaousion. Why? Because the most important thought that you will ever think is what you think when you think of God because that thought will determine every dimension of your life. If we don't have a right view of Jesus, then we won't see the real Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. He makes God known to us. The real Jesus makes the real God known to us. And the real Jesus is reigning on God's throne right now above all earthly political powers and above all earthly politicians. I don't care what anybody decides and does. Does it affect us? Yes. But who is sovereign over them? Who is sovereign over Gavin Newsom? Jesus is. He's reigning on his throne. He could come back at any minute, and when he does, all his enemies will be put under his feet. They will bow their knee to him, the real king. And when he comes again, he will usher in the new heavens and the new earth, and any chance to repent, which just means to turn, any chance to, to turn away from living for you and turn to him to find mercy, any chance to repent and be reconciled will be over. So if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, turn from living for you. Turn to him and then you can really begin to live. Trust in what Jesus has done for sinners through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension in order to be reconciled to God. This is the real Jesus. He is the Colossians 1 image of the invisible God. He's God's anointed son. He is the king. And he will squash all of his enemies when he returns. And they will be thrown into the everlasting fire. And that's something to avoid. Understand this. The real Jesus is not a pansy. The real Jesus is not a pushover. The real Jesus does not have nice feathered hair and soft hands that smell like strawberry lotion. The real Jesus is the most powerful king that has ever been. And he can take you out today 
and throw you in hell. And nobody else in the world can do that. But even though he is all-powerful, you must know this about him, he is also merciful. He is compassionate. He is gentle. He is kind. And his kindness toward you in your life is meant to cause you to repent, to lead you to repentance. If you don't know the real Jesus, today would be a great day to bow your knee to this king. And when you do, you'll discover just how loving and kind and merciful and generous and caring he is. The real Jesus is really merciful to real sinners like us. And that's why I love him so much. And I hope you come to love him too, perhaps even before this sermon is over. The real Jesus wants the real you. He wants to welcome you into his family. He's crazy good to people like us. He welcomes people like us into his presence. And if you don't know this about us here at Grace, if you're new to Grace, you have to know this about us or you'll be unnecessarily disappointed. We're sinners, okay? We're sinners here. We sin all the time. We make mistakes. We'll probably offend you. If you don't know that about us, you will be unnecessarily disappointed. We don't want you to be disappointed. We want you to know right off the hand, hey, we're sinners. We're going to drop the ball. We're going to mess up. We don't do it on purpose, but we're sinful enough that we might do it on purpose. I don't know. We really mess up sometimes. We really do. I do. As the pastor of this church, I really blow it sometimes, more than I want. And yet God is still quite fond of me. Can you believe that? And God is still quite fond of us. Wouldn't it be great if you belong to a God like that? Wouldn't it be great to say, God is so fond of me? To go into your work tomorrow and say, you know what? God is so fond of me. Did you know that? You can belong to him if you're willing to bow the knee to the real king, if you're willing to get real with the real Jesus, fess up to your sin, and just open the empty hands of faith and say, I bring nothing but my sin. Wouldn't it be great if you belonged to a God like that? I think so. So just come. Trust in the gentle and lowly Jesus of Colossians 1. So earlier I read that quote by A.W. Tozer. It's on the cover of your worship bulletin this morning. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Interestingly, C.S. Lewis actually read that and he broke out in theological hives. And he replied to Tozer by saying this. He kind of trolled him. He didn't reply to him directly. He trolled him on Twitter. Uh, He said this. I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing about us is how we think of God. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance except insofar as it is related to how he thinks of us. Now, I don't think the two quotes need to be reconciled because I get what each man is saying. But what really is the most important thing about us? It's what God thinks of us. What God thinks of you is infinitely more important. Are you in Christ? Are you one of his children, united to his son by faith? If you are, then these wonderful promises are true of you. Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. 
We were just singing it. He loves us. Oh, how he loves us. Jeremiah 31, 34, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. I know you remember your sins. I know you remember the things that you did yesterday and this week. Jesus can't remember your sin. You stuff those promises into every nook and cranny of your heart and they are true because Jesus is God's eternal son because he has shown the Father to us. Dane Ortland says, Jesus is the embodiment of who God is. He is the tangible epitomization of God. Jesus Christ is the visible manifestation of the invisible God. In him we see heaven's eternal heart walking around on two legs in time and space. When we see the heart of Christ, then throughout the four gospels, we are seeing the very compassion and tenderness of who God himself most deeply is. As you consider the Father's heart for you, remember that he is the Father of mercies. He is not cautious in his tenderness towards you. He multiplies mercies matched to your every need, and there is nothing he would rather do. Remember, said the Puritan John Flavel, that this God in whose hand are all creatures is your Father and is much more tender of you than you are or can be of yourself. Your gentlest treatment of yourself is less gentle than the way your Heavenly Father handles you. His tenderness towards you outstrips what you are even capable of toward yourself. The heart of Christ is gentle and lowly, and that is the perfect picture of who the Father is. John 16, 27, the Father himself loves you. And let me tell you, the Father himself loves you. And he sent his son Jesus as proof. And we lose all of that if Arius is right. We lose the heart of God if Jesus is the very first thing that God created. Thankfully, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is heaven's eternal heart walking around on two legs in time and space. He is a God that you can truly and wonderfully enjoy. Go enjoy him today. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are a God that we can enjoy. That's not how most people think of you. Most people think of you as either being a pushover or someone who's just so uptight and angry with everyone. But you are a God to be enjoyed, to have fellowship with, to commune with. And that's what we want Help us to think rightly about who you are. Help us to stay in your word, not entertain thoughts and feelings that we may have, but to understand who you are as you've revealed yourself in your word. Make us a church that loves you and wants to share this wonderful news with others. In your name we pray, amen.